Joe originally told me four Sundays, and now it's three, so <laughs> trying to pack it in. No, I didn't really do much uh, before I found out it was three. Should have probably been doing much, but wasn't. Uh, so for those of you who don't know me, I'm Jason Cruz, um, and like I said, I'll be doing three Sundays. Um, a lot of you probably know, you, you might recognize me from doing announcements. Uh, I also am the administrator here at the church. Um, been doing that, I think, about six months now. It's wonderful. Happy to serve in that way. Um, and excited to teach this morning. Hopefully it goes well. Hopefully Joe doesn't regret asking me to do it. <coughs> um, so we'll get started in just a minute here, but first let's have a word of prayer. Lord, your word gives us everything we need for life and godliness. Uh, we ask you now to help us, Father. Please help me to communicate your truth clearly and accurately. Um, help us all to go out from here applying your word to our lives in ways that are pleasing to you, in ways that bring glory to your name. Um, we pray this, that you'd be glorified in your name. Amen. Uh, okay, so much of the teaching will be based on uh, this book. Some of you may have seen it. Um, it's actually from the early 90s. It's a Wayne Mack book uh, called Your Family, God's Way. You see that uh, title at the top of your outline there. The subtitle is uh, Developing and Sustaining Relationships in the Home. Um, and when I was looking at it, after I found out three weeks, I thought it was pretty convenient that the book is divided into three sections. Uh, and I'm still sort of planning on trying to do a section per week, but the middle section is a little bit longer than the other, so that might be a little bit of a fluid concept. Um, <coughs> uh, as it shows in the outline there, today we're going to go over the groundwork. Um, so kind of the foundation is another way of saying that for the God-honoring uh, family. Uh, and you see on your outline three points, A, B, and C. Uh, on the front page there. The first one is the maximum father and husband. Uh, second one is the fulfilled and fulfilling wife and mother. Uh, and then the third one, C, is insights into parent-child relations. And don't worry, I won't be going over the 39 practical ways to foster a spirit of loyalty and uh, togetherness in your family, but I thought that was very helpful. And if you, if you aren't aware of it already, uh, Wayne Mack loves lists, so he, he uh, gives good lists. And this is a good one to take home and uh, work through with your family. All right, um, so before we get to those three points, uh, I want to start by establishing two points that I think will be helpful as we go along, uh, and I'll probably bring these up occasionally as we go through all three weeks. Uh, number one, God has a definite plan and structure for a firm foundation for a Christ-exalting home. Um, and we've, we've been, I mean, the family's been an emphasis over the years here at Calvary, so I think a lot of us who've been here a long time have a pretty good foundation in terms of knowing what the roles are in the home. Um, uh, but this will hopefully add some practical things to that. Uh, number two, we will not succeed in making our homes what they should be without establishing biblically-based plans and then sticking to them as God allows. Um, Dr. Mack, when he was here, actually, we had him meeting with the interns. Uh, I've done more than one meeting. But I remember one in particular when one of the interns asked him if he had um, any sort of strategy for making sure that he had proper time with the Lord uh, considering his busyness in ministry. And he responded that his plan was to have a plan. Uh, and that intern responded with laughter. Uh, I won't tell you who that was. But um, it, was, it was interesting for a couple of reasons. Um, one, I think our generation, a lot of times, my generation included, myself included, uh, is pretty lackadaisical about how we go through life. A lot of us tend to drift. Um, and, and we have the luxury of drifting. Um, the necessity for planning is, is probably not what it was when things were a little bit more difficult, but things have come pretty easily, uh, at least for my generation. Um, 
And the other is that men who are productive like that uh, do plan and do execute their plans. Uh, John MacArthur, I'm told, uh, when he's asked the reason for his productivity or the sort of the source for it, his answer is apparently, I've been told this, I don't hear him say that, but uh, that he keeps his seat in the chair until the work is done. Uh, and, and that's always convicting to me because that's, that's the opposite. Um, and I think probably for a lot of the guys, that's the opposite of uh, what our tendencies, our natural tendencies are. Uh, so moving on to what's in the outline here, and you probably, you know, I already said it, but you wouldn't be surprised to, uh, to hear that it starts with the husband and father. Um, like I said, we're probably pretty well taught here at Calvary about the roles of husbands and wives, and I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on the distinctives of those roles. Uh, but I wanna, what I really want to spend time on is giving you some, some practical tools for maximizing your effectiveness uh, in terms of your practice of godliness and the role or roles God has given you in your home. Uh, so if there's a text for today, um, and, and Dr. Max sort of uses this for the first two chapters of the book, uh, it's Psalm 128, 1 through 4. If I could have someone uh, look that up and read that for me. Um, this speaks of the father uh, and the mother and the children in the kind of home that's pleasing to the Lord. Um, so someone have that. Uh, here in this psalm, we have a picture of the various members in God's kind of family, uh, what they're like, how they function, how they relate to one another, and what empowers and motivates them to be the family that they are. Um, first, we're going to take the husband and the father. Um, can anyone tell me uh, what the defining characteristic of the man in this verse, and, and the man actually in the ESV is in verse 1 there. Uh, can anyone identify a defining characteristic? That's right. He fears the Lord. Um, <clears throat> as for what that means, uh, we get a little bit of help in verse 1 um, in the ESV, the man who fears the Lord walks in his ways. Um, but since uh, it seems and it's, it's biblical that the man who walks in the Lord's ways uh, does so because he fears him. So it's helpful to expound a little bit on what it means and doesn't mean to fear the Lord. Uh, and also some practical ways to get to work to cultivate the fear that is key to be an, being a husband and father. Um, to start with, and it's impossible to overstate this point, and, and Dan's sermon, uh, for those of you who heard it this morning, goes, goes very well with this. Um, the proper fear of the Lord requires union with Christ. Um, and, and like Jesus wasn't ready to let the woman of the well go uh, at the moment that he had her there where most evangelists would want her, he, he pushed her into, into thirst for Christ. Um, so in other words, you won't have the proper fear of the Lord without being saved born again by grace through faith in Christ. Uh, and when this is true of us, we, like the man in Psalm 128, will exercise obedience that springs from fear of the Lord. Um, so if you find yourself in the, in the position, uh, and there's, there's two ways sort of to go off uh, the right balance here. One is paralyzing dread, um, like the, the unfaithful servant in the parable of the talents who thinks that his master's a hard man. Um, so, so anxious dread or terror of the master is, is inappropriate. So if you find yourself in that position, or if you find yourself saying something like, I'm a Christian, but the fear of God is not very powerful in my life, or even if you find yourself thinking you've never really trusted Christ for salvation at all, and like Dan said this morning, the answer is the same in all of those cases. 
Um, you know, I said, like the, the Hebrews writer says, consider Christ. Do not neglect such a great salvation. Um, the call is to repentance, whether it's first time or ongoing, um, loading your conscience with the guilt of your sin and, and letting that drive you to the cross and to repentance. <coughs> uh, so that's, that's uh, first. And uh, as an aside, uh, like Dan was saying, I, I almost don't even need to, um, to repeat this because he said it this morning. But uh, there is such a, proper, such a thing as proper dread of the Lord uh, for a believer. And like Dan said, especially in American evangelicalism, there's a too common practice uh, of thinking of God as being incapable of being displeased with his children. Uh, this is not the case. He's most certainly capable of being angry when we sin and praise him. He's not always gentle in dealing with our sin. Uh, the writer of Hebrews says he scourges every son whom he receives. Uh, and if we think about that, it definitely seems proper that we should occasionally dread him. Uh, but this should result in godly sorrow and repentance. And this is, this is exactly what Dan was teaching in there. Uh, which should drive us to the cross, to crucify our sin, and ultimately to God's loving embrace. Uh, so now that we've looked a little bit at proper and improper fear of the Lord, uh, let's establish a working definition of the fear of the Lord uh, that we're seeking. Uh, here is how uh, Mac defines it. And I don't think this is in your outline, actually. Um, anything that, that um, isn't in the outline, we're going to have books available probably next week. Didn't get them ordered quite in time, but uh, we'll have this book available for you guys if you want more details. <coughs> so this definition is from the book. Simply put, the fear of God is the inevitable response to a growing biblical understanding of and relationship with the true and living God who has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. Um, so with this definition, if you've come to Christ, and especially if the, you're the guy who admits that the fear of God is not very powerful in your life, what can you do? Um, while there's some very practical answers, and we'll get to those, uh, it's important every time we want to take a step in obedience that we remember our dependence on God. Um, and a recurring theme here will be John 15. Uh, Christ, the true vine, and apart from Christ, the true vine, we can do nothing. Um, and, and, and constant recognition, you know, like Dan said, letting your sin drive you to that recognition of your dependence on him for righteousness uh, is required as we, as we want to take steps into obedience and not slip into legalism. Um, so scripture, as always, is key to maintaining that mindset. Uh, and I'm going to go ahead and read these for the sake of time because we have a lot of material. But um, Jeremiah 32, 38 through 40. Uh, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever. Uh, and then in verse 40, I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. And then 2 Corinthians 4, 6 in the New Testament. For God said, let light shine out of darkness. Um, so God who said that has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And of course, beholding that glory of God in the face of Christ is what gives us the fear uh, that's key to being a godly husband and father and the, the key to being a, a faithful believer. So the simple and humbling answer is that just as only God gives the salvation we need, God alone gives the kind of fear we are seeking as well. Uh, but again, just like in salvation, God uses means to give it to us. Um, and actually, it was, it was providential, happy providence. Uh, yesterday morning, I was in Psalm 111. And uh, somehow in this study, I hadn't come across this. <coughs> but the psalmist here in verse 10 actually says that the fear of the Lord is something we can practice. Uh, it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. Uh, and my understanding from my wife is anybody who's been coming to Pam McGaw's Thursday night Bible study, the women's Bible study, probably has a little bit of a head start on this. She taught fear as a discipline uh, in the last couple weeks. Um, and that's what it is. Uh, so I've got a list here of three practical things, and I think this is in your outline. 
uh, three practical things you can do to cultivate uh, the fear of the Lord that we're after. Um, first off, we can pray. Uh, and certainly this should start by praying that God would give us the proper fear we are seeking. Um, as we can see from passages like we read in Jeremiah and 2 Corinthians, this fear comes through an accurate knowledge of the Lord and a right relationship to him. Uh, so we can pray that he would reveal himself, and that's, that's in our uh, definition, is that we need to have a biblical understanding and relationship. And for that, we need him to reveal himself to us uh, through an accurate knowledge of the Lord, which is going to come from his word, uh, and a right, right relationship to him, which is his word drives us to that. <coughs> uh, so that we can, we can pray that he would reveal himself to us and reconcile us to himself, giving us a rich relationship uh, with himself in Christ. Um, and I'm also happy to be able to point back to, to Russ, who, who uh, taught, I think, probably in the last month or so for three weeks on prayer. Um, and also, it's great to be able to say that's on the app <laughs> and uh, also on the website. <coughs> um, so go back and listen to those. That gets into to prayer, the discipline of prayer, more in-depth uh, than I do here. Uh, but just to add to that, and Russ may have highlighted this. I was teaching the four-year-olds for most of that. <coughs> uh, structure your prayers and uh, use, use, use it as a discipline. Um, a format like ACTS, uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with that, that's just sort of a breakdown uh, to, to pray biblically, starting with adoration, moving on to confession, then thanksgiving, and then supplication. Um, so what, what um, Dan and maybe some of the elders, there's, there's, a, there's a focus on prayer um, has been kind of since we've started leadership training. Um, and that's come to the staff and come to leadership guys, and it's been just a huge blessing to get into the discipline of intentionally structured pr prayer. Uh, and something that a lot of us are doing is having a, just a composition notebook. I do it on my iPad, but uh, just a cheap composition notebook that you divide into those four sections, maybe put a section for answered prayer. Uh, as an encouragement, and keep track of it. Keep track of scriptures to, to pray through. Let your prayer be informed by scripture. Uh, and um, one thing to do is to seek accountability on that. Um, I came up with what I wanted to do, then I asked uh, a brother and uh, my wife to hold me accountable to keeping my structure. Um, Dan says, I think it's Dan, who says, uh, what gets checked gets done. So ask for it to get checked, and it'll be more likely to get done. <coughs> uh, so the second uh, practical thing you can do is to make it a regular priority to be still and meditate on God as he is revealed in Jesus Christ. Um, and, and one of the ways we do this is um, memorizing scripture. Uh, of course, we're not commanded to memorize scripture, but the principle is there. Uh, we are commanded to meditate. Um, so meditate on the supremacy of Christ. One of the things I've done um, when I feel my heart cold, um, you know, maybe I'm not convicted by the sinfulness of my sin, one of the things I've gotten in the habit of doing is looking in Scripture for places where men or, or people fell on their faces, having beheld something magnificent or glorious about God or his ways or his creation. Um, so, so meditating on those things that make uh, godly men and women throughout Scripture just fall on their faces and worship, um, that, can, that can bring you to a worshipful place. There's also uh, an 18-minute video, uh, which is a compilation of John Piper material, called The Supremacy of Christ. Um, and that's an 18 minutes well spent. You can find that on YouTube. Uh, just Google uh, John Piper Supremacy of Christ. Um, just find ways. Uh, there's a list actually in the, the MacBook about, and that's not a computer. <coughs> the Wayne MacBook. Um, a list of ways to set your mind on the Lord um, uh, when you come to him for meditation. Um, the third practical thing we can do, and this is last, not because it's least, um, if, if anything, I'd like you to go out from here, seeing the importance of reading God's word. Um, 
and, and our meditations and our prayer must be informed by God's word. So this really is the essential discipline. Um, you know, Jesus says in John 8.31, to those who had believed in him. So, so talking about people who made a profession of faith, he said, if, he made, it, he made it conditional. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Um, and it sort of explains this to us in John 17 in the priestly prayer when Jesus says, sanctify, which means to cleanse or to wash them in your truth. And we know that if we're not sanctified, we won't see the Lord. Um, so I want to encourage you to be systematic and intentional with your scripture reading. Um, there are so many helps out there for this. Um, you know, apps, just tons of free apps. I use one called Reading Plan, uh, which has various reading plans that, that go with it. I use uh, the Professor Horner system. Um, and Bibles that will read to you on your phone or on the Internet in your car. Uh, it, it's doable to, to get systematic about this and disciplined, asking accountability for it to make sure that you're, you're engaging in these disciplines. Uh, and again, we're straying a little bit from how this is the, the husband and the father, but this is, this is the key to cultivating the fear of the Lord, which according to Psalm 128, uh, verse 1, is the, the essential component to being the father in the pleasing, uh, the, the home that's pleasing to the Lord. Uh, another another uh, item, there's a list, like I said, in, in Wayne Mack's book. Uh, another thing I use, and I've been using it for a while, and I know others in this room use it, uh, is the acronym from John Piper, I-O-U-S. Um, and it's just praying, and it's praying, I, most of the scriptures, I think, are from Psalm 119. But as you approach scripture, just praying these things, incline my heart to your testimonies, open my eyes to the wonder of your word, give me an undivided heart to seek you in your word, and satisfy me in your word, so I don't look for satisfaction elsewhere. Um, <coughs> and did I include the URL to that in the notes? No? Um, if you Google John Piper I-O-U-S, find that. Everything's on the internet. <coughs> um, so yeah, and he, the way he puts it uh, is it's a way, and I don't think I wrote that down, I think he said it's a way to avoid vain repetition, um, which, which is a danger we're in when we start structuring our lives, and if we look to the structure rather than the Lord for uh, the motivation, for the purpose behind what we're doing here. <coughs> Um, so to bring this uh, back around to, to us men and our roles as husbands and fathers, uh, let's look briefly at John 13, um, 6 through 10. Uh, and again, I'm going to read these myself um, for the sake of time. <coughs> uh, speaking of Jesus, it says, He came to Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, and this, this think of John 17 uh, here where he says, um, sanctify them in, in your word, your word is truth. Uh, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. Um, and some of us probably already know when Jesus distinguishes here uh, washing the feet from washing the whole body, He's making a distinction between the positional washing that happens when someone is saved and the daily washing uh, that must take place in the child of God. And this is what Dan speaks about in the sermon today uh, in terms of daily repentance and confession on the Lord being faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us daily from, from unrighteousness. Um, <coughs> uh, we often hesitate to speak of our progressive sanctification as a condition for ultimate salvation. Uh, and this is for good reason. Uh, that kind of speech has historically led to many self-justification systems, and, and we definitely want to avoid those. 
But here, it's, it's undeniable. Jesus confronts us with what should be a chilling reality without having our feet washed, uh, experiencing that daily confession and repentance. We have no share with him. Uh, now, as for what this means and, and has to do with fathers and husbands, uh, continuing in chapter 13, um, we're going to read 12 through 14. Um, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, this is the key, you also ought to wash one another's feet. <coughs> so we have the responsibility to wash one another's feet, uh, to invest in one another's sanctification. We as husbands and men, we know this from Ephesians 5, um, sort of a key text on, on the marriage relationship and the roles in marriage. Uh, we're to be invested in the sanctification of our wives. And of course, uh, we're to be evangelizing our children, pleading with them to come to Christ and when there's any evidence that they have, we need to be busy about the work of washing their feet as well, investing in their sanctification. We'll get to this um, with the kids, uh, because, of course, until they come to Christ, we need to be diligent to train them and discipline them and teach them uh, the scriptures that they'll call on when the Lord is gracious to save them. <coughs> uh, but back to this picture of Christ washing the disciples' feet. It's just a beautiful illustration of what is to be our role as husband and father. Um, it, compa- it combats the tendency some of us have to think that we have this authority, uh, and, and the husband and father does have God-given authority in the home. Uh, that's, that's a biblical reality, um, and, and we can't stray from that. But we have a tendency to be heavy-handed with it, and that is the opposite of, of the scripture, um, the picture that the scriptures paint on that. Uh, instead, this is the model, uh, servant leadership, taking, taking the reins in the home in terms of washing the feet, washing one another's feet. And your wife and your children, when they get to be believers and, and mature in the faith, they'll play a role in washing your feet. Um, but men, you, you need to take the reins here. And uh, you're not going to do that apart from a proper fear of the Lord. So that's, that's the essential aspect of cultivating, uh, cultivating these disciplines. <coughs> um, so this is the practical call. I mean, these, things, these three things are practical that you can be doing. Uh, and then taking those and let them fuel um, action for you to, uh, to be washing the feet in your home, to be sanctifying your wife and evangelizing your children. Um, uh, so this is where, I, like I said, I want to call to action based on practical things and, and putting these things into place. Uh, just like with all the teaching that goes on here, it's, it's, it's meaningless apart from Christ as the motivation, but it's also meaningless if you don't do it. So, so, so do some of these practical things. Take them home and uh, put them to work. Um, uh, and, and like I said, apart from Christ, we can do nothing. John Piper likes to say, you may have heard him say this, oh, how much nothing we do. And uh, men, this is, this is our tendency. At least, at least it's mine. My tendency after coming home from work is just to want some peace and quiet. And there's a place for that. You may need a few minutes, but you can't selfishly take your whole evening and all day Saturday and give yourself what you want. That's going to be serving your idolatries. Um, so, so you're going to have to make some changes and cut out some of that time I have to do that. I have to do more of it. Um, I have three little girls at home, and, and I know I don't do enough. Uh, but that's God's way of keeping us humble, too, is, is making us feel overwhelmed um, by the amount of stuff we have to do. And, and we're never going to feel like we're on top of it. And we're never going to be uh, rejoicing in the right things unless we're, we're putting these things into action. Uh, so I think we're doing okay for time. Um, we're going to head on to the second component, letter B there. Um, the fulfilled and fulfilling wife and mother. Uh, and as you'll see here, she's uh, second in order in the notes, but uh, in no way inferior. Um, 
starting with the imagery from Psalm 128, uh, the psalmist says, your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. <clears throat> of all the things to which God might have compared the wife and mother, he chose a fruitful vine. Um, now, the significance might be lost somewhat on us, but to an Old Testament Jew, this imagery would have been very significant. Uh, for people living in Bible times, the vine symbolized uh, luxuriousness, value, and prosperity, something highly desirable and worthwhile. Um, here are some biblical examples. When God wanted to describe the good land into which he was going to bring his people in Deuteronomy 8, um, he said it would be a land with vines uh, when the king of Assyria tried to entice the people of Israel. So this is even a non-Jew. I mean, it was, it was significant throughout the region, uh, throughout the ancient world. Uh, he wanted to entice the people of Israel to submit to his reign. He promised each of them would have his own vine. That's in Isaiah 36, 16. Um, God dignified the concept of, of the vine by calling the nation of Israel his vine. Um, in Jeremiah 2.21 and Hosea 10.1, uh, Jesus paid the ultimate compliment to the vine by calling himself the vine. And that's that, that section that we said would uh, come up repeatedly here. Um, John 15, called himself the vine and God the father a vine dresser. So if, the, if, if God the Father is mindful to, to, um, to tend the vine and to care for the vine, it ascribes importance to the vine. Um, from the context of John 15, it's evident that Jesus uses the vine to describe himself because the vine symbolized life, refreshment, and ministry. Um, Jesus is literally the embodiment of these things. And again, without him, we have no chance of doing or being any of them. So again, that emphasis on we are dependent on the lifeblood that flows through us, the, the sap that flows through us to nourish us and to motivate and drive our good works. Um, and that only happens when we're in the vine, when we've been regenerated in Christ, grafted into the vine, as Paul says. Um, so women, notice here, and men, we need to notice this too, the significance God is giving here to the role of wife and mother in the God-honoring home. In a very real way, as Christ is to his people, life-giving, nourishing, helping, loving, uh, you women are called to be to your homes. Um, and women are ideally suited to this probably notice that just through their natural um, tendencies. Uh, and what a high and dignified calling this is. Can you think of any higher compliment than to be described with the same rich imagery that Jesus uses for himself? <coughs> uh, and, and ladies, I know that seeing the bar set this high is probably pretty intimidating, uh, and it should be. Um, it's that same passage where Jesus is called divine, John 15, where we're told, apart from him we can do nothing. Um, and I imagine some of you ladies were in pretty strong agreement. I don't know if I saw any heads nodding, but I expected to. Uh, when I said that men tend to do a lot of nothing. <coughs> uh, but for women, the tendency can be, I think, in, in the opposite direction, and I may be speaking too much out of my own experience in my home. <laughs> but where we tend to divert ourselves with who knows what in response to life's difficulties, women's tendency uh, is often to make up for their husbands in action with self-determined, tireless, and sometimes resentful hard work. Um, what's wrong with this? You might ask, and apart from the resentful part, you probably know there's something wrong with that. <coughs> uh, you might ask, isn't it what we're called to? Uh, the answer is yes in a way, but with a major qualification. Uh, like we did with the men, at this point we need to go to first things first. The gospel must be central. Um, and, and here it's not just the initial coming to Christ and, and confessing and repenting. But it's that daily ongoing dependence on Christ, uh, not seeing yourself as self-sufficient. Um, if, if you see yourselves, let's see here. Yeah, this is a good quote from, from Wayne Mack, um, and we're not quite there yet. But if you see yourself, if you find yourself feeling like you're working hard and burning out, spinning your wheels, um, and, 
and this is how Wayne Mack puts it, you're driven toward perfection without even knowing what that is, um, this could be the problem. You're not applying the truth of the gospel to your work as wife and mother. In all of, in all of this, we not only start with the gospel, first repenting and trusting, but the truth of, of repenting and setting our hearts on and minds on Christ every day is key to this as we seek God's grace to structure our days and prioritize our work according to his directives and the principles in his word. Um, and, and our tendency, instead of going to his standards, is to, to make our own standards uh, based on our own upbringings, uh, on not wanting to be like our parents, on what we see others doing, and that list could probably go on forever, uh, things that we use to make our own standards. Uh, but thinking about where we might look for God's instructions on how to be the fulfilled and fulfilling wife and mother, um, Proverbs 31 is at the top of the list, and that might not surprise you. Uh, but before we get there, let's go all the way back to the beginning of Scripture, to Genesis 2, uh, where God gave um, the, the woman to the man. Can anyone tell me what word he used uh, to describe Eve in giving her to Adam? She would be what to him? Exactly. She would be his helper. Um, and he joined that um, in a way that does not suggest inferiority. Uh, joined it with the word that's often translated meet, as in to meet someone. Um, <coughs> and that can also be translated um, compatible or appropriate, suitable. Uh, the woman is to be a helper who corresponds to the man. She fits. She's capable. She stands with the man and helps him to accomplish what he could never accomplish on, her, on his own. Um, and that fits nicely, of course, uh, with the description of the woman in Psalm 128 as a, as a vine, corresponding with Christ as vine in John 15. In the way God designed this, husbands, we're not able to do what we need to do uh, if we're married apart from the help of our wives. That's, that's God's design for this. Um, and, and God also uses that word that's translated helper uh, for himself. Um, so, so you see here the importance of that role. Uh, he calls himself the helper, that same word in Deuteronomy 33:29. Psalm 25.9 and uh, Psalm 121, 1 and 2. Um, this is because of who and what God is. He's the very helper we need. We can't get along without him because of who and what the woman is by God's design. She is the very helper man needs to fulfill his God-given responsibilities in the world and in the home. Uh, so on to Proverbs 31 and the portrait it paints of the woman in the home that's pleasing to the Lord. Um, first, I want to address um, something those of you who've studied Psalm 31 uh, might have, have noted, um, and that is that there are details in the description of the woman that it can be hard or impossible to, to apply directly to the average woman li living here in Fort Worth uh, in 2013. Um, there are at least two reasons for that. One uh, is that some of the details no longer to describe today's world. Uh, in verse 16, for example, buying and planting a field was more characteristic of life in an agrarian society. Uh, also, uh, distaff and spindle were common in homes of that day. Uh, and then also, this woman evidently re uh, possessed some resources that aren't available to everyone either then or now. She had servant girls, and she had money with which to buy a field and rich clothing. Uh, but, but as we've probably been taught here, um, the general principles found in the description of the Proverbs 31 wo woman are universally applicable. Uh, her character and conduct are an excellent example of the wife and mother in God's kind of family. She is, in some ways, an excellent example of what every Christian should be. Uh, truth be told, anyone, man or woman, who, who struggles with passivity or laziness uh, would do well to study, at least in part, and to, to work to imitate the uh, Proverbs 31 woman. Um, so the characteristic here is actually the same, the, the defining characteristic of the Proverbs 31 woman from verse 30. She is a woman who fears the Lord. 
she has a big concept of God. Um, her fruitfulness, the secret to it, is not her dynamic personality, her strong willpower, her physical beauty, her pleasant situation, her unusual resources, her good training, her natural gifts, or her exceptional husband or children. And that's a long list, and those are things we tend to put hope in or to despair because we don't see ourselves as having being gifted with those. Uh, but there's hope here. Just like with the husband, um, you know, the, the list that I went through of practical things for him to do to cultivate the fear of the Lord, none of those requires ex exceptional gifting in these ways. And, and women, those, those practical pointers can be put into practice in, in your life's lives as well. <coughs> um, and 2nd Peter 1 3 applies here again God has given us everything we need for life and godliness and it's to fuel uh, that fear um, so if you've read that Proverbs 31 passage and, and, and I've definitely heard that, that women do this um, and declare it to be unrealistic or impossible and I think <laughs> I would be that intimidated if I read that and I am that intimidated when I read it I'm intimidated for myself in ways that I don't match up to that, and I'm intimidated for my wife who's called to. Um, <coughs> uh, if so, you, if, that's, if that's how you feel, you have assumed that you are dependent upon yourself to develop this kind of life. Uh, and thankfully, I can say those aren't my words. <laughs> uh, those are Wayne Mack's words, so blame shift to him there. But that's true, and I'll repeat that a little differently. Um, if you have thought of the Proverbs 31 woman as being unrealistic or impossible, you have forgotten that your sufficiency is from God. He's given you everything you need, and his sufficiency is in Christ, not in yourself. Uh, apart from a close re personal relationship with him, you will be overwhelmed by what you read in Proverbs 31. Uh, and like I said before, if that's how you feel, don't worry. This is the function of the law. Dan covered that today, and if you go to the second service, you'll hear that. Uh, the function of the law and conviction is to drive us to the hope of Christ and to the end of ourselves. So if a, if a passage like Proverbs 31 makes you feel inadequate, that's because you are inadequate. You need to rise in Christ to the occasion, not self-determination. <coughs> um, and I like to make a distinction here uh, between self-examination and introspection. Um, and of course, we're told to look to ourselves in terms of sin, so you could say that's introspection. But, but I try to distinguish between them for the purpose of self-examination, which we're called to. And the way I'm going to define introspection, we're not called to do that. Um, Self-examination to which we're called looks like the doer who acts from James 1. Um, and I'm going to see. I need to keep reading this, these so that we can uh, make it through here. Um, from verse 23 in James 1, uh, going through 25. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Um, so I'll get to how that's a definition for self-examination, but let me in define introspection. Um, and I like to say it unflatteringly. Flatteringly, I call it navel-gazing. Um, so hopefully that makes it sound unappealing. Um, <coughs> and this is just spending all your time looking at yourself and thinking about how badly you've always done things. Um, and that's paralyzing. Uh, it's it's going to leave you depressed and hopeless and feeling helpless uh, if you just spend all your time looking at yourself and your, your inadequacies. And, of course, introspection is looking at yourself. So, so that's how I kind of keep myself away from that. Look to Christ and see how you don't measure up to the fullness of the stature of Christ and then get to work. That's how, that's how the perfect law of liberty works in verse 25 there is 
it makes you a doer who acts and will, who will be blessed in your doing. So, so yes, confess and repent. Be like Job uh, who says, I, I saw you by the seeing of the, or no, I'm sorry, I heard you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Um, I, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. But he didn't say there. He got up and did. Apostle Paul in, in 1 Corinthians 15, um, I'm the least of the apostles because I persecuted the church. So sees how wretched he is, says he's not worthy to be called an apostle. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace wasn't wasted on me. I worked harder than any of them. So he got up and worked. He, he poured himself out for the church that he had persecuted. Didn't stay there meditating on himself and, and on how uh, inadequate he was, how unworthy he was. Um, so let the Holy Spirit beat up on you instead of beating up yourself. Um, go to the, to the passages of Scripture that are the hardest on your sin that you're, that you're um, wrestling with. Uh, he won't overdo it. You can. you can. You can go into morbid introspection, but he won't overdo it on you. Um, and this will bring you to the end of your prideful self-sufficiency, of your tendency, and this is, this is um, common to women in my experience at least, tendency to think that we need to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and get her done. Okay, so uh, we hear this a lot around here. I think Dan coined this, but um, it's helpful here. Let's see ourselves as fallible, dependent planners. Um, people who want to systematically understand the Lord's will as best they can and begin to take determined steps in the direction of faithfulness. Um, so the first step is for us to be going to be to look at the priorities of the Proverbs 31 woman uh, and then to go and, and to, to do it. Um, but so the, priori the, uh, the priorities that she has, she's a family-oriented person. Uh, she's a fruitful vine within her home. Uh, we see in verses 13, 14, and 16, uh, and 20 that she's not restricted to her home. She goes out. Uh, but she is utterly devoted to her family as her number one ministry. Her family is not neglected as she does other important things. Um, secondly, her husband trusts her. Um, the Hebrew word means literally to lean upon. He depends on her, knows she will be there for help and support. Um, she's a husband-oriented person. Uh, and, and you see that in the way her husband praises her publicly as a result. Um, of, of her children, um, they say, with the husband, many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. And what they appreciate about her, they say it in verse 30. Uh, it's not her charm, which is deceitful, nor is it beauty, which is fleeting. The key is that she fears the Lord. And her children are blessed by her godliness, which is manifested in noble character and conduct. They appreciate the way she's devoted herself to her family. Um, <coughs> so I'm going to draw a little bit from personal experience here. Um, Stories seem to illustrate and, and uh, provoke action best sometimes. Um, so uh, those of you who know my wife uh, may know why I think she's the embodiment of the Proverbs 31 woman. Um, and I checked with her on, on using her this way, uh, and that was the part she didn't want me to say, <coughs> um, which is good. She's, she's, she's humble, but she does excellently. Uh, where she has to watch herself, um, is in the tendency, and I've already alluded to this, to be self-determined and trying to stick to the plans she's made for herself. Uh, and the key is there is being self-determined. So that, that's the tendency. Um, so based on our experience working through that, um, we've come up with a list of priorities for our home. Um, so this is our list, and it may not apply perfectly to you, but I've included it there in your outline. Um, and first, uh, we use this for all believers in their efforts to be faithful. It's about direction, not perfection. Um, that, that Mac quote was perfect. She's, she's 
working tirelessly in the direction of perfection, and she doesn't know what perfection is. Um, but though God has called us to be organized planners, he has not allowed us to be perfect planners. Our plans will fail. We will feel weak and inadequate. And again, this is a good thing, coming to the end of ourselves and, and looking to God for his, priori prioritize, for pri his priorities. <coughs> Excuse me. Number two, a uh, practical thing you can do is prioritize. Um, you know, I'll say to my wife that I don't want her to think that clean carpet isn't important to me. Um, and she might think that because she knows when I was single, I never vacuumed. <coughs> um, but clean carpet, now that I'm older and a little more mature and we have people coming over to our house, uh, clean carpet is important to me, but it's way down the list. Um, here's a sample priority list um, uh, for you wives and mothers. So actually, that wasn't, I got a little ahead of myself. That wasn't the priority list. This is the priority list. Uh, number one, your time with the Lord. Uh, yes, I put this at the top of the list before eating, showering, feeding the kids, before everything. Right after one of my daughters was born, uh, Grace, I think it was, Kelly was tempted to neglect this. Um, and I asked her, and it might have been unwise, uh, but it worked. I asked her if she had eaten that day. <coughs> uh, when she said yes, I reminded her that man does not live on bread alone. Um, I don't think she felt glowing affection for me after I said that, uh, but it, it uh, drove her to get in the word. And boy, it just turned around. You know, she was hopeful and joyful and wanting to stay up all night and nurse the baby, which I can't identify with at all. <coughs> um, let's see here. Number two, feeding yourself with physical food. Uh, along with your fellowship with the Lord, this is something you must do in order to make your, yourself effective in the rest of what you are called to do. Your body uh, needs to be nourished to be able to perform. Um, and Kelly reminded me when I, when I went over this with her to make sure it was all right to share it. Uh, if she's not doing this, and I think I think I get to this in the notes, but <coughs> if she's not doing this, her attitude, she's more easily provoked to sin. You know, she's more irritable, shorter with the girls, um, and and whatever we can do to to uh, prevent temptation, we need to be doing as long as it doesn't cause us to be unfaithful in other ways. Um, so. Um, Yeah, so <laughs> this came up, you know, at one point she was, she was vacuuming the carpet and all of a sudden feeling like she was about to pass out. And I, that's, that's why the whole vacuuming thing, in, in the, where it needs to be in terms of priorities, um, make sure that your body is prepared to do the job it needs to do. Uh, and then if you have kids, number three, meeting the kids' most basic needs. Uh, they may not need a planned activity today. They may, may not even need school time today. Um, and these are things that we can put too high, especially women, too high on the list of priorities. Um, what your kids need today and every day is their necessary food. Uh, they need your love-fueled efforts to train them in unrighteousness and discipline them according to Scripture. Um, as I'm sure you'll agree, and this is where Kelly's point of her tendency that she's not well-fed physically, um, and even spiritually, of course, um, meeting these most basic needs out of love will probably be impossible, um, and you'll fall into that resentment um, if you're neglecting either your spiritual or physical nourishment. Um, number four in priorities, doing whatever is needful to be your husband's helper suitable. And some of you might put that higher on the list. In my home, we put that you know, down this far after the kids' most basic needs. Um, but this is going to look different depending on his occupation, your schedule, his schedule, the number of kids you have, whether or not you're home, you homeschool, uh, and many other factors. Um, but here you can go over the list um, that are already given of the Proverbs, 30, Proverbs 31 woman's uh, ways of meeting her husband's needs um, and make sure that you're you're performing the role of your husband's helper in those important ways. Uh, and the book probably goes into much more detail on that, but we don't have time. And then number five, 
uh, and this one, there's a temptation to put this much higher on the list too. Um, but this is where the, the chapter uh, title comes from, the fulfilled and fulfilling wife and mother. She first needs to be fulfilled before she can fulfill for others. Um, uh, so here she can minister, if she's, if she's been meeting her priorities according to scripture and she's planned out her priorities with her husband and understands his expectations, uh, she can minister out of the fullness of her relationship with God and the fullness of the reward that she's getting from walking in faithfulness in these ways, which is going to be joy. You know, you'll find yourself rejoicing in your duties um, if you're prioritizing rightly. Um, and you'll have extra energy to devote to the church. And these, are, these are sort of our priorities, to the church, to beautifying the home, and to any other type of kingdom service your heart desires. Um, and here's the call to action for women. Uh, do this. Establish a list of priorities if you don't already have one. Uh, Wayne Mack has some helpful counseling homework that we have in the office, and I've actually scanned it into my email. So uh, if you want to email Dana um, and request that, it's several pages. Uh, and it's not from the book. It's from one of his other resources. Uh, but it starts with a current schedule audit and walks you through the process of structuring your life around biblical priorities and goals. Um, and husbands, you're not off the hook here. Um, this is part of your call in Ephesians 5 to sanctify your wife, uh, set her apart from the busyness of everything that's going on and encourage her to do this. It'll be freeing for her to understand your expectations um, and to understand how the Lord would have her uh, prioritize in your home and be effective. Um, and women, seek accountability from your husband, from sisters in Christ uh, to, to get this done and to implement the things that you do in your planning. All right, uh, section C. Um, close to running out of time, but I think we can get through this. Uh, how to Grow Olive Plants, Insights into Parent-Child Relations. Um, so again, we'll go back to Psalm 128 for its picture of children in the God-honoring home uh, from verse 3. Your children, uh, and they'll be like olive plants around your table. Uh, and that's the NAS. Uh, I think the ESV says olive shoots, um, which is the same thing, but plants gives us a better understanding for our purposes here, you'll see. Um, like with the fruitful vine analogy for the wife and mother, um, it'd be helpful to have a little context in order to understand what this should mean to us, what, what an olive plant is. Um, here's a little help for inf information about the olive plant. <coughs> um, the olive tree was the most important tree in Palestine. In Judges 9, it's called the king of the trees. Um, and then in Romans 11, um, just before Paul gets to the glorious... Um, doxology at the end there, uh, he's describing God's people, and, and that magnificence drives, drives him to such worship. He's describing them as an olive tree, as planted by God, and us as being grafted into it. <coughs> um, and then also, only olive oil could be used to consecrate the priests and fuel of the lamps in the tabernacle. So all that to say that the psalmist's depiction of children as olive plants implies that you should have a high regard for your children. Um, they're valuable and precious, and Jesus felt this same way about children. In Luke 18, he told his disciples how they needed to be like children if they wanted to enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, he sternly re uh, rebuked them in Mark 10 for trying to prevent children from coming. Um, at the same time, he did not have any unrealistic ideas about perfection or innocence of children. Um, and I, I, don't, I think we understand around here mostly that children are sinful. I certainly understand it in my home. Uh, but sometimes my, my expectations could be unrealistic. Uh, you know, I've told them to do something a thousand times, and they're only three, two, and less than one. Um, and they continue to do what I've told them not to do, or not to do what I've told them to do. 
Um, but Jesus understood that they were born sinners and needed to be regenerated and redeemed and changed by God's grace. Um, so here, again, like with the husband and the mother, uh, the husband and the wife, uh, the gospel has to be central. First things have to be first. Uh, and it's a huge challenge for families like us raising kids here at Calvary uh, not to make assumptions about our kids' salvation and spiritual health. Um, just like with adults and often perhaps even more so, being around solid believers is going to have a restraining effect on sin. So it might be harder, it probably will be harder, to discern your children's hearts. Uh, but we're no less called to. This is, this is a practice we must engage in. Um, so especially with our children, we need to be doing diligent work to discern their spiritual conditions. And, and moms and dads, this is where it's critical that you're doing your work in your own spiritual disciplines. Uh, you're not going to have discernment if, you're, if your mind isn't infused with the word. Uh, it's, it's at least it's going to be much harder to do this in self-determination. Um, <coughs> you need to be pursuing the right motivations for what you're doing in your training and your discipline. You need to be walking in the light before God in your own life. Uh, if you're not doing this yourself, your kids, if they don't yet, as they get older, um, whether or not they become believers, they're going to see through your efforts at training them in righteousness and disciplining them according to God's word. They're going to see your double-mindedness and your double standards. <coughs> um, and you've probably heard this before, but among the best opportunities you'll have to minister God's word uh, and to share the gospel with your kids and to see what's in their hearts is when they sin, um, when they disobey you. Um, Ted Tripp, you may have heard these, he has five heart questions um, to identify the idolatries, to identify where their hearts are when they misbehave. Um, and I don't think I put these here, but you can Google Ted Tripp five heart questions and you'll find these. <coughs> what was going on? What were you thinking and feeling as it was happening? What did you do in response? Why did you do it? What were you seeking to accomplish? And what was the result? Uh, we have these posted on our refrigerator. Um, our daughter's a little bit young, uh, but with our oldest, Claire, who's three, we use sort of an abbreviated version of them. And we take those opportunities when she sins to, um, to bring the gospel and, and to, to try to discern her heart and to encourage her to, to look to Christ for hope um, if she wants to obey and avoid the consequences of sin. Um, there's also another side of this. Uh, some of you might know Brent is actually really good about this. He's probably said stuff about it in front of you all. Um, <coughs> and I miss him. <laughs> it's, it's a blessing to have Brent in the office reminding me of these things all the time. He's, he's so good about proclaiming the gospel and being central. Um, and he's good at this. Um, and I don't know when it came up in his mind, but it's something that prompted him to action. Uh, that a possible hazard of sharing the gospel every time you discipline is that your kids will come to identify the gospel only with unpleasantness. Um, something you can do to combat this is to declare the glory of God everywhere you see it. And this is what Brent does with his kids. I've seen him do it. In the blue sky, in the complexity of an eyeball, in your ability to enjoy ice cream, in anything that strikes you when you're spending time with your kids. You know, your heart might go there and you might exalt in the Lord for a minute and your kids never know anything about it. But, but communicate it to them. You know, that, that kind of thing, taking moments of, of rejoicing to, to show the gospel can combat that tendency when we discipline them to use the, the gospel to, to make it negative. <coughs> um, anyway, uh, unlike with most adults, we will need to be interacting with young children for whom it's unlikely they'll come to know the Lord anytime soon. I mean, with an adult, uh, there's no condition of accountability. They've come to it, generally. Um, <coughs> with children, this isn't necessarily the case. And like Jesus, we must be realistic in our attitudes towards them. We must realize that they have potential for great wickedness. 
as David says uh, in Psalm 51, in sin did my, son, my mother conceive me. In Psalm 58, uh, the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. And, and any of you with little ones, that's, boy, does that bear out. <laughs> uh, so biblical realism uh, requires both this recognition of children's sinfulness, and it also requires, uh, as I already touched on earlier, that you see your children as persons of great value and worth, not primarily because they are yours, but because they are persons made in the image of God and are his gift to you. Um, now also, um, Wayne Mack addresses this, and I think it's good because there are certainly people in this room who are single, uh, maybe who will stay single, um, married people who won't have children for various reasons. Um, but uh, this quote from Wayne Mack is good. If you're in that position, seek God's help to avail yourself of opportunities you do have to nurture children in godly ways in your larger family, uh, the church. Uh, ask God to show you how and with whom you can do this uh, to do your part in raising godly offspring for him. Um, <laughs> I put this in my notes here. Don't be surprised if you pray this, if God tells you that you should come over to the cruise house and help us. <laughs> should have put pictures of them up here. They're really cute. <coughs> um, uh, and, and seriously, many of you have come and ministered to us, and I know that, that there are many in the, the singles group, um, single serving has done a wonderful job of this, and it's such a blessing to the, to the moms and the dads and to the children, too. Um, spending time with our kids and with us, blessing us personally, ministering to us in our home. Um, I know Kelly and I praise the Lord for that uh, when, we, when we have it, um, and it's wonderful. Um, <coughs> so some practical things uh, that we can know and do, um, dri deriving these from the olive tree analogy. Uh, the olive tree and its products uh, are highly useful in a variety of ways. Take from this that you should have high expectations for your children. Uh, make sure that they're in keeping with their personal gifting and stage of development, but don't underestimate their God-given capabilities. And this is even as unbelievers. I mean, we're God's grace to them. We're like their Holy Spirit, bringing conviction, uh, pointing them to Christ. Uh, we serve that role for them, at least while they're, they're with us. Um, <coughs> encourage them to believe that in keeping with their gifting and maturity level, they can make important contributions even now. Uh, number two, olive plants need careful attention to bear fruit. The soil around them must frequently be plowed. They need water and fertilizer. They need warmth and sunshine. Uh, learn from that, uh, these things. First, do your utmost to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Uh, be genuinely and actively spiritual in your lifestyle. We've hit on this again, but, uh, we've hit on this many times already, but it's important. Hide God's word in your own heart. Make your entire life a living epistle. This is a quote from Wayne Mack. Ma make your life your entire life, a living epistle to your children of God's truth. That's, that's powerful, I promise. Uh, make yourself and your home a fun place to be. Uh, and that's important. It's in, it's in keeping with the idea of, of taking fun moments and, and moments where you're exulting in the Lord to proclaim the gospel and the fact that we're only able to enjoy the good things because of God's grace. Um, <clears throat> seek to eliminate from yourself and your home anything that would inhibit fruitfulness. Uh, and we talk a lot about this a lot around here, the radical amputation principle. Um, this in the home is things like TV, internet, um, inappropriate books or magazines. Don't have these things, and it doesn't have, I mean, it's not pornography necessarily. It can just be stuff that's not edifying. Um, if it doesn't drive your heart to worship Christ, uh, and you can't praise and thank God for it, get it out of your homes, get it out of your lives. Uh, and lastly, don't try to bear fruit for your children. The olive tree must bear its own fruit. Um, and we get to that a little bit more under these practical things. Um, 
let's see here. And this is under a section in the book called uh, Plants and Not Branches. Um, and according to Mac, the uh, psalmist was intentional in using plant, and that was why I used uh, the ESV instead of the NAS as I was looking through this, <coughs> is because instead of a shoot, it's, it's, a, it's a plant, an independent plant, which is also what a shoot is, but we think of plants as being an independent. Um, they're plants and not branches. A plant has an independent existence, while a branch is simply part of the tree. Uh, this points to the fact that we are to respect the individuality of our children. God didn't intend for them to be carbon copies of us. Uh, if there were more kids in here, I thought I probably would have heard an amen to that. <coughs> we would probably say it about our parents. <coughs> uh, so let's take from that the following. One, your children have different ideas than your own. Don't be threatened by uh, differences of opinion, but help them to think through issues for themselves. Uh, number two, stand firmly, calmly, and intelligently. And those are really good. Those came from the book. Uh, on issues where you have a biblical command, uh, thus saith the Lord, don't compromise. That's not part of reaching your kids. Um, number three, beware of getting involved into unnecessary power struggles. And we've talked about this a lot in our home. Uh, don't set up unnecessary rules, you know, especially if your kids are prone to breaking the rules a lot. Uh, minimize opportunities for them to sin. Remove temptation. Um, number four, provide fences, not straight jackets. Uh, establish biblical limits and then train your children to obey them. Um, and then in the early years, that's going to be tighter. Um, Dr. Max says, leave room for, for maneuvering even there. Whatever decisions you can allow your children to make, uh, allow them to. And then as they mature, the fences are expanded so that the children assume more and more responsibility uh, for their own lives. Uh, and then number five is sort of a summation of three and four. The goal here is uh, of three and four is to progressively develop inner motivation uh, and self-control. And hopefully in Christ, as it goes along, your role as being like the Holy Spirit in your home starts to s subside and, and the Holy Spirit takes over and regenerates your children. And then the motivation comes from that. Uh, but training is part of the, the Holy Spirit's uh, ministry. So, so be intentional there. <coughs> and eventually your children will be able to live biblically without the need for excessive external motivation or control. Um, number six, ultimately, this is the ultimate goal. You want your child to grow up to be interdependently, a bit of a tongue twister, interdependently dependent on Christ and his word. Um, you want them to be plants within a larger orchard, the church, and that's the interdependent part. They'll need to relate to other people. So if all they if all they do springs from what you've told them to do specifically, that's going to be it's going to be a problem for them. Um, and then when they get this to this point, you'll want to point them away from yourself and to Christ as the one on whom they are the most dependent. Um, and we are out of time, so I'll run through. It's very little that we have left. <coughs> Practical points: um, the Psalm 128 thing with them being around your table implies that you're there as well. Uh, spend time with your kids, and of course. This is more a call to fathers probably than mothers. Mothers probably spend as much time as they can bear with their children. Um, but uh, you being there is implied here. You can't know the needs of your children unless you give them your focused attention. Uh, so six things. Study them, listen to them, talk to them, play with them, think about them, and pray over them. Uh, we have in the office uh, seven things to pray for your children. Uh, John Piper, fantastic. I don't know, if, did you bring that up? Excellent list. I think you can get it online, I'm sure. John Piper, Seven Things to Pray for Your Children. Uh, and and that's, that's great for letter F there. <coughs> uh, the picture of the olive plant analogy. 
um, conveys the idea with them being around your table and you all being together and delighting in the gifts of the Lord implies the idea of fellowship and loyalty. And it suggests that building your family God's way involves developing family cohesiveness and togetherness. Uh, unfortunately, this doesn't just happen. It must be cultivated. And that's where that list of 39 things on your last page there comes in. These are practical things you can go home and do. Uh, and, and they look wonderful. I haven't had uh, the opportunity to do much with those yet. <coughs> been spending time on this, but um, uh, go home and do those. Uh, work through the ones, you know, look through them and highlight ones that, that you want to start implementing right away and do that. <coughs> okay, uh, almost finished on time. Uh, we've gone over the groundwork for God-honoring family relationships, uh, the maximum husband and father, the mother who's fulfilled and fulfilling, and insights into parent-child relations. Um, hopefully some of that was practical. You can go home and do it. Uh, next week will be on developing God-honoring family relationships. And the way Mac does that, it's mostly on practical aspects of good and bad ways of communicating in the home. Uh, so I hope you can be here for that. Uh, let's close with prayer. <coughs> Lord, thank you for this time that we've had to dive into the teaching on how to lay the groundwork for Christ-exalting home. We pray that you would help us this week as we try to put your word into action. Lord, that we'd take uh, what Dan taught us this morning, Lord, about thirsting for Christ and the need to let our sin drive us there. Lord, as we plan to see our inadequacies, but, but not to trust ourselves, not to see sufficiency in ourselves for these tasks. Lord, but um, to look to your word, to your perfect law of liberty, and let, us, let it drive us to action for your glory and for our great joy. In your name.